Hi, everybody, and welcome to Airway First, a podcast from the Children's Airway First Foundation. I'm your host, Rebecca Downing. Today's episode is the first installment of a two-part series with my guest, Dr. David McIntosh. Dr. McIntosh is a pediatric ENT specialist with a particular interest in airway obstruction, facial and dental development, and its relationship to ENT airway problems and middle ear disease. Dr. McIntosh has undertaken advanced surgical training in ENT, head and neck surgery, and pediatric training at Starship Children's Hospital in Auckland, New Zealand. Dr. McIntosh has been published in peer-reviewed ENT journals throughout the world. He has also presented on ENT topics throughout Australia and overseas, and is a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. During the course of his career, Dr. McIntosh has held memberships with the Australian and New Zealand Society of Pediatric Otolaryngology, Australian Rhinological Society, and the Australian Sleep Association. He is also the author of Snore to Death, Are You Dying in Your Sleep? You can find out more about Dr. McIntosh at entspecialist.com.au. And now, here's part one of my interview with Dr. David McIntosh. All right. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. McIntosh. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. So let's just dig right in. And um, I want to talk a little bit first, just kind of set ground set for everybody, um, what exactly it is that you do and your specialty as an ENT. Yeah. So uh, as people might uh, jump onto board with my accent, I'm, I'm from Australia mm-hmm. and I did my basic uh, ENT training as is the standard. And then when it did an extra year of pediatric uh, fellowship training, and along the, the journey, had an interest to develop in upper airway obstruction, both in children and adults. And over time, that's become uh, quite a strong part of uh, my forte with respect to the types of cases and patients, therefore, that I see. Mm-hmm. So the majority of my work these days is doing something that sounds remarkably simple. It's helping people breathe better. And that has an impact on their health and well-being, uh, mm-hmm. and also ties in strongly with their sleep and sleep quality. Right. And you, you made the comment that it sounds remarkably simple. Obviously, it's not. Well, it, it's something that we all take for granted with respect to breathing. It's not something that we necessarily are consciously focused on or aware of in terms of how we're breathing. And mm-hmm. then whatever pattern of breathing we develop over time, we accept that is just being the norm. So if, for example, someone uh, is uh, a mouth breather, then mm-hmm. they, they grow up thinking that they're a mouth breather and just take that on board as being something that's normal for them and it's no big deal. Right. Uh, and then when you start digging around the edges, then you can sometimes turn up all these problems that, that they've got around them that they just, again, think is just part of who they are. Mm-hmm. So part of the complexity is actually just addressing the fact that people are just so unaware of the importance of proper breathing in the first place. And then the next step is, particularly with uh, sleep, mm-hmm. is uh, making parents in particular uh, aware of the fact that snoring is not normal and that uh, the, the, you know, even noisy, heavy breathing is not normal. 
So, so part of the challenge is actually just making people aware that there's a problem uh, and that it's not normal. Mm-hmm. Just educating them. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and, and I can, can honestly say I, uh, when I was a first time mom, I fell prey to that same, Oh, look, she's snoring. That's so cute. You know, and now hindsight, you look back and she stopped obviously, but you know, looking back, I'm, I wonder, you know, how many other parents have done that and their child doesn't grow out of it. And here's this underlying issue now that the child is contending with and parents don't realize that that's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's not a criticism of parents. It's not like there's an instruction book right. that, that comes, uh, that sort of, you know, if, if, if this red light is on, then please go see ENT because right. breathing is a problem. Mm-hmm. So this is, again, as you sort of allude to, is the education. But uh, as, as, as we'll go ahead and obviously dig into the weeds as, as we discuss things, we've got to have a perspective here. So when we talk about uh, you know, snoring, mouth breathing, and then the, there's this thing called sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about it specifically in the pediatric population, we're talking about something that's affecting probably 20 to 25% of children in mm-hmm. their developmental years. If you do the simple math on that, that, that makes this uh, the most common chronic health condition of childhood. Right. You know, this is far more common than asthma, far more common than diabetes. I'll guarantee you most parents have heard those two words and have mm-hmm. some sense of what those words mean. Oh, of course. But if I was to mention the overarching con- you know, description of this condition, which is sleep-disordered breathing, I'll guarantee you that mm-hmm. just get a blank stare from most parents and go, sleep-disordered breathing, what's that? And, right. and then if, if, if at a push we might hit a mark on something called sleep apnea, and they might go, oh, yeah, I know about that. But that's the worst end of the spectrum of a condition that uh, basically is, is founded on things that progress over time. You, you don't wake up, you know, no pun intended, one day with sleep apnea. Um, you know, there's a process that, that leads to the evolution development of these conditions. And all these stepping stones along the way are opportunities uh, and so forth to identify something earlier and actually nip it in the bud. And there's, there's a whole lot of clues that, that in retrospect, when the child you know, lands on my doorstep, you can start to sort of piece the, it all together. And then all of a sudden, it's like reading an Agatha Christie novel. And, you know, it, it, it's so obvious at the end of the day where those clues are just staring you in the face mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it all, it's all laid out and it makes so much sense. But again, it's all that in hindsight you know, not knowing right. what you didn't know. And then when you do know it, and then it all just makes sense. And parents will go, oh, that makes so much sense now. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the penny literally drops with respect to things that, that had been, you know, question marks in their head and concerns along the way that nobody really thought. And, you know, we've, we've, we've all, you know, normalised this to some degree. You know, we have this term called the terrible twos, mm-hmm. for example. Right. You know, that's, 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 that's a, a term that society uses to write off, you know, behavioural um, issues in young kids. Mm-hmm. That's one of the manifestations of sleep disordered breathing. Uh, so we, we, we've normalised things and snoring is a perfect example. There's, there's plenty of movies that you can watch, um, you know, where they have kids snoring, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in it. And it's all sort of just representative of the fact that that's part of, 
what you expect to see when the child is asleep or, or expect to hear more, more particularly when the child is asleep. Right. And, right. And, and, and again, no, no second thought is given to it. But when you know what I know and you, then you see that in the movie, then you, you, you just face palm and just go, here's, an, here, here's, here's another time where as a society we've demonstrated our, our ignorance and our acceptance mm-hmm. of a condition that, has such a deleterious effect on the development of children. It really Absolutely. does. And and in doing so, we have created or manifested this pandemic, this huge issue that is global, that is yeah. you know, 400 million children right now. And these children are becoming adults. And so now we're impacting the medical systems across the board with a variety of chronic diseases, which we'll discuss, that could have been prevented. Yeah. And, that, and that's that's what I posted way early on back back when this this era of um, of I don't even like uh, using the the term COVID anymore. I think we've all got a bit fatigued with it. Right. But 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 you know I posted something said imagine there was, if there was an infection that spread throughout children and, and it affected twenty to twenty five percent of children and it caused brain damage. Mm-hmm. Imagine there was an infection that did that. How proactive and urgent would we act to address that problem mm-hmm. that's what sleep disordered breathing is exactly it's, it's no different except the mindset um you know if there was an infection that spread through children and resulted in them not being able to breathe properly which had the consequence of affecting their sleep quality and reducing the oxygen supply to the brain and disrupting their sleep patterns and then in turn affecting their school performance and behaviour and so forth. You know, and, and, and we had scans that proved it caused brain damage, like literal brain damage mm-hmm. on, on scan images. We, we would have a massive um, healthcare crisis uh, that would be front page of every uh, news service, um, you know, that you could think of. We've, we've got that condition. It just happens exactly. that it's just it not just, an infectious it, disease per se. Right. Um, it, it, it's already here upon us. And mm-hmm. we're all, again, no pun intended, we're all asleep at the wheel. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. And I'd like to talk a little bit more just so parents understand, because we've mentioned it in a few blogs, and I know it's mentioned on your site as well. Both mouth breathing and sleep disorder breathing impact the brain. Um, I just I'd like to dig into that a little bit more so parents understand, because I think when you hear that, it sounds so surreal. You know, how is that possible? You know, okay, so my child is a mouth breather. Aren't they getting more oxygen? That's a good thing. You know, how, how do these two, you know, sleep apnea specifically and, and mouth breathing, chronic mouth breathing impact yeah. the brain? Yeah, so so we've used the, the term sleep disordered breathing. So so just to clarify that in terms of what that encompasses. So so that's the overarching term, and mm-hmm. what it basically describes is a spectrum. So if we go back historically, how, how we landed on this page initially is obviously with adults. So we identified way back in the day that there was a group of adults that are having a lot of car accidents. And it turned mm-hmm. out that they were snoring and stopping breathing at night, and that was the obstructive sleep apnea. So they had disrupted sleep. They were tired. They had these little micro moments where they 
lost their concentration, lost their focus, and as a result had a car accident. So that's how we tripped over it in adults. And then we sort of noticed that there were kids that were snoring and stopping breathing too. So, you know, they had sleep apnea. Now, but there was a dichotomy because in the adults, the, the mainstay was that these were you know, significantly overweight, obese people. So that mm-hmm. was the paradigm for obstructive sleep apnea that we uh, developed. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, there's that, as, that, as a by the by, there's a whole cohort of adults that we completely missed because they weren't obese, they weren't overweight, right. but they had other issues going on, um, which actually sort of digs into the weeds as why we you know, end up with this as adults um, in terms of what's founded on in childhood. So it knits together quite nicely. So anyway, but these children, they, they weren't overweight or obese. If anything, they weren't growing very well. They tend to be tiny and, and quite thin and scrawny. Um, and we sort of noticed that in that group that the issue was that their tonsils and adenoids uh, in particular more than anything else, were a problem. And the ENT started uh, getting involved and, and removing those tonsils and adenoids. Um, and it was a little bit confronting because in those children, they, you know, they didn't have tonsillitis, which was our historical focus for the procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the process of taking those tonsils and adenoids out, those children started doing better. Because uh, it removed the, the obstruction, the, correct? It opens we up. Relieving the obstruction. So all of a sudden, there, there was a change in, in breathing and, 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 and so forth. And the, the seminal article that that, that came from uh, was David Gazal, who within the circle of, of airways uh, is a well-known uh, researcher mm-hmm. and, and pediatrician in the USA. And what he did uh, back in the, the late 90s is he went to his local school board and said, look, I just want to send this survey to the, the kids that are in the bottom 10% of your school grades. And the survey was very simple. Does your child stop breathing at night? Do they snore and stop breathing at night? It was a simple, you know, community screen um, mm-hmm. for airway obstruction and where the parents said, oh, yeah, that's my kid. Um, those children were then offered the opportunity to see an ENT and where appropriate had the tonsillitis adenoid surgery. And then fast forward 12 months later, of those children that were managed as, as per stated, none of them were in the bottom 10% of their class anymore. So the reason that we tripped over this in children obviously wasn't car accidents. It was academic performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but we were still sort of stuck in this paradigm of obstructive sleep apnea. But what we noticed along the way is that there was a group of children who they were snoring, struggling to breathe, but they weren't quite at the point where they were stopping to breathe. They didn't have the apneas. They had just enough basically to fight against it um, but they were working really, really hard to do what should have just come normal and naturally. And then mm. they weren't having the apneas, but again, they had this pattern, it, it, you know, again, historically in the mainstay of tonsil and adenoid problems. And again, the ENTs dipped their toe in the water and started, fi- started fixing those kids and they started getting better. And then we started finding that kids that were snoring uh, again, having breathing, uh, you know, issues. Snoring is a noise that is a sign of airway obstruction. And again, landed on the doorstep of the ENTs. Again, behaviour problems, school performance problems, started Mm -hmm. fixing them. They started getting better. And then we tripped over the mouth breathing group and started fixing them. And they started getting better. And then so that basically encompasses the overarching term that we call sleep disordered breathing which is a confluence of the fact that 
the aberrant breathing pattern, whatever it may be, and obviously varying in what we conceptualise as severity, uh, has an impact on sleep and that then has an impact on health. And that health uh, issue, as I said, historically is sort of focused on academic things, but we've realised now it's behavioural and mm-hmm. it's also, uh, for example, ADHD. Right, and, and it's a diagnosis. That, yeah, paper that came out in the early 2000s where mm-hmm. children uh, were, t- were fronting up to an ENT clinic uh, with, uh, again, the, the paradigm at the time was just obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, there was over a 1,000 children, and there was like, well, yeah, the ENT saw them. It's like, yeah, your tonsil and adenoids. But before they did that, they presented these children to psychologists and psychiatrists and said, look, you know, can you make an assessment of these children from your paradigm? How many of these kids have got ADHD? And it was a substantial portion of them um, met the criteria of ADHD. And then the ETs get thanks, duly noted, went and fixed them because that was what was going to happen anyway. And then 12 months later, brought them back to the psychologist and the psychiatrist and said, how many more of these kids have still got ADHD? And a lot of them didn't. You know, the the so-called ADHD was gone. So they sort of, depending on, you know, whose doorstep they would have landed on, they either would have got an operation or they would have got medication. And, you know, that, that just highlights a huge problem. So how does this all evolve and how does this all eventuate? Well, what we need to understand is in children, and this is, you know, one of these despondent facts that as adults we need to come to accept, the, ad- the, the, the child's brain is far more active than an adult's, far more active. And the reason for that is they're going through a massive amount of learning, whether it's the initial yeah. stages of learning to feed themselves and then learning to talk and learning mm-hmm. to walk and then developing motor skills, uh, learning to write, and then hitting school and learning math and reading and sporting things and so on and so forth. Massive amount of learning. What people may not be fully aware of is our learning happens when we sleep. So in terms of what happens is the brain uh, functions by basically having this uh, bucket uh, where it's just everything that happens through the day gets thrown into that bucket. And then at night time, there's a sorting and filtering process that goes on where the Mm. brain looks at each piece of information and then decides whether that's a keep or a toss. So, for example, uh, you would have seen someone today um, and they would have been wearing something. Okay. Your Your brain doesn't care about that. That's not a useful piece of information unless you gave it some sort of importance. So, for example, you're like, wow, I really like those shoes. Where do you get those from? And you make, a, you know, what we call a mental note of it, you know. Then it becomes a key. And then the brain goes, oh, there was something about that that we want to retain, so we'll put that in the save file. So you think of it like, you know, essentially a computer, Um, but imagine it's a computer that basically needs a clear run at things. It's got this massive amount of data that it needs to process. It has a defined period of time and it has a defined way of, that it needs to do. There's, there's a, a sequence that it needs to follow. But then imagine that that computer is plugged into a power supply that is having a power interruption every 10 seconds or every mm-hmm. 30 seconds. And the computer needs to shut down, reboot, and start again. It's not going to do what it needs that, to do very well. And that's what's happening during sleep apnea. It that's doesn't like get a clear run at it. And, and 
it's because of the sleep disruption because if there's a disruption in breathing then the brain needs to go into survival mode and go oh all right i've got to put my attention to something else that's not where the brain wants to be are listening to Airway First with today's guest, Dr. David McIntosh. You can find out more about the Children's Airway First Foundation and our mission to ensure that every child has access to screening, evaluation, and treatment of all children's airway disorders before the age of six on our website at childrensairwayfirst.org. You can also find a ton of great resources for parents on our website, including videos, blogs, recommended books, comprehensive medical research, and more. As a reminder, this podcast and the opinions expressed here are not a medical diagnosis. If you suspect your child might have an airway issue, contact your pediatric airway dentist or pediatrician. And now, back to my interview with Dr. David McIntosh. People think that when you know when we're asleep, the brain switches off. The brain goes into a very specific mode, and it's learning mode. It obviously needs to tick over in the background because it does all the things that we don't think about. You know, breathing, monitoring our heart rate, um, you know, monitoring, you know, all sorts of things that are going on within our system. That's it's all just on automatic pilot. Mm-hmm. And we're lucky that we've got that because it allows the rest of our brain to do the other things that we are familiar with. But when we sleep is when we learn. So we have uh, basically the perfect storm because if you're not breathing properly for whatever reason, then you've got the disrupted sleep uh, architecture, uh, which means that you're not building a a house on solid foundations. And furthermore, um, if you have some form of airway obstruction, then you have an oxygen supply problem. And essentially, the brain to function optimally needs a constant, reliable supply of two things. It needs oxygen and it needs sugar. That's mm. that's its two magic ingredients. And if there's anything going wrong in that context uh, with the oxygen supply, well, again, that's another layer of problem. So where um, we sort of run into this thing, I think, you know, in the mainstay, obstructive sleep apnea is an easy one to explain to parents. You say, look, it's choking. And you go, mm-hmm. well, oh, if you're getting choked, of course you're not getting oxygen. That's a right. really easy concept, you know. But where people get lost is say, well, mouth breathing. So, well, they're taking bigger breaths. So exactly. they're getting more air. So mm-hmm. if they're getting more air, they're getting more oxygen. Then it must be good, right. So, so why, why, why can this possibly be an issue? So what we need to understand is how the air gets from the outside to the inside. And in very simple terms, when we breathe in, the air goes into our lungs, Mm -hmm. and then within our lungs, the blood is flowing, and then there's an interface, basically, where the air and the blood um, are allowed to make an exchange, um, where basically the deal is that the air uh, will donate oxygen to the blood, and in return, the blood will remove a byproduct of metabolism called carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And when we breathe out, uh, we breathe out uh, that carbon dioxide. And it's actually the carbon dioxide that regulates our breathing because the carbon dioxide is a metabolic byproduct that has an impact on our body's um, 
sort of fluid level when we talk about acid and base, what we call pH. Um, okay. The carbon dioxide level needs to be just right. Um, so the way that that body and nature has hacked that for us is actually giving us a way of regulating the carbon dioxide and in turn the regulating the acidic acidity uh, level of our blood uh, through breathing. So so breathing is, 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 is a twofold process. It's not just about getting the oxygen in, it's actually getting the carbon dioxide out. Okay. And, and when we breathe in, we only take a fraction of the oxygen that, that we actually breathed in. We don't, we don't take the whole amount, we take a portion of it. So what, what needs to happen is that we need to meet up in the middle. We need the, the air that we breathe to, to meet up with the blood that, that, that flows through the lungs. What happens, though, is that the blood flow through the lungs is not universally consistent. So there's more, just to keep things simple, just to understand how this matches up. In the mainstay, uh, there's more blood that flows through the bottom of the lung relative to the top of the lung. And when we breathe through our nose, relatively speaking, the lower parts of the lung open up more than the upper parts of the lung. So when we breathe through our nose, the air that we take in, the, 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 the balance of the, the volume that we breathe, most mm -hmm. of it is distributed towards the lower parts of our lung, which is advantageous because that's where the majority of the blood is. So we have what we call ventilation, which is basically, all right, you know, we, we push air into a space. Where does it go to? So we have that, the ventilation of a space. Right. And we have perfusion, which is the blood flow. So we talk about what's called a ventilation perfusion match. And if they're matched up well, then the air and the blood are pretty much akin to being in balance. So we get an optimal system where we get uh, the, the blood can say basically take the oxygen that it wants and needs. When we're a mouth breather, mm -hmm. uh, that involves taking bigger you know, breaths. But right. in doing so, we're using different muscles. So when we breathe through our nose, we predominantly use what's called the diaphragm, which is mm -hmm. the, the lower plunger uh, of, of, right. of, of muscle. And in mm -hmm. doing so, when it pulls down, it opens up the bottom parts of the lung. When we mouth breathe, we tend to use the, the, the ribs and the muscles around the upper part of our chest. And as a consequence, that tends to open up the upper part of our lung. So when we ventilate, we end up with you know, proportionally more air going to the upper parts than the lower parts. And this is what we call a ventilation perfusion mismatch because the air is going in, but the blood's not there to meet it. So there's no mm. exchange. And as a consequence, there is a, a, a whole volume of blood that flows through the lung that completely misses out on, on, on oxygen. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, we have this, uh, you know, waste, wasted effort. You know, the, the heart has gone to this significant effort of pumping this blood through the lungs and the blood and basically comes through and turns up empty handed. Right. So that's why mouth breathing um, in, in its very simple physiology results in this very subtle oxygen deprivation. And it is subtle. You know, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, it's a lot when we say it's two to 3%, but that's all it takes for the brain. The brain is sitting on this very fragile, uh, you know, tipping point where just, just 3%, you know, or, or more is an issue. And if you're a mouth breather, you're already sitting at two to 3% deprivation. So you're sitting on the edge of the cliff. 
And then uh, it just takes just these subtle, you know, little nudges here and there where, you know, you're having to work a little bit harder with your breathing. So you're getting a little bit of a fatigue thing going on. Um, and if you've got, um, you know, you get a little bit of a cold um, and you get just that little bit more blocked and that's, you know, the parents go, oh, do they snore? And they go, oh, yeah, only when they've got a cold. It's like, well, they're mouth breathing and they go, oh, yeah, they mouth breathe all the time, you know, and so forth. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the little cold, you know, it just makes everything worse. Well, that was that little thing that pushed them over the edge of the cliff. And, and that's, the other, that's the other counterbalance to this is that we, we have um, the, uh, the, the, the pernicious, you know, you know, effect of things is basically the, the net balance of people's exposure to the um, irritant and their ability to cope with it. So, um, you know, and this is the only analogy that I can think of. I use smoking as the example. Okay. You know, we, 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 we can identify people that picked up a cigarette at the age of six and lived to the age of 110 and smoked a packet of cigarettes for their whole life. Okay. Um, they just had some really good genetics at the end of the day that gave them the resilience to basically survive against all the bad things that we know smoking does. And, and, but we don't use that as an example to say, see, smoking's okay. We just go, wow, that person because got that's away an outlier. with it. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they got away with it. That's an outlier. And that's the same with this scenario is that we, we have a vulnerability level and also therefore a resilience level. And it's the, you know, it's for, for some children, they have such a remarkable resilience through their genetics that they can have these airway problems and it actually doesn't affect them. You know, they've, they've basically got this ability to cope. They're, they're an outlier, mm. all right? Um, but that's the exception by far to the rule, just like smoking, um, you know, to right. the age of 110 is the exception to the rule. And for some children, you know, they just need just a microdose of airway obstruction. They've got no resilience or, you know, or, or, or ability to cope, and they're an absolute mess, but other children really need to get really quite blocked before they sort of, you know, land on our doorstep in terms of it becoming obvious. And when so we're talking about we a mess, have... it's not just, it's not just their sleep quality that suddenly becomes impacted. It's uh, a lower IQ as well as just in general school performance. It's the misdiagnosis of ADHD. It's mental and emotional. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're absolutely right. You, you know, you sort of want to say mess. I mean, what I'm talking about is just that landscape then of how we then from a medical point of view actually then trip over these kids. And, you know, by the time we're tripping over these kids, the, the horse has been bolting for a long time and is already mm -hmm. way down the, out, out the stable, out the paddock, jumped the fence and, 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 and off into the distance. And now we're playing catch up um, to it all. So, you know, that's, that, that's just a sort of, in simple terms, just to try and explain how we land in the terms of a, a brain problem. But, you know, you've sort of now opened the door and say, well, look, what are the health issues? And if we were to, you, you could nominate any body system, any body part that you want to nominate. I can tell you how that, that and it has an impact on a problem. But what's helpful is to just talk about big picture because okay. the big picture is what we need parents to sort of just, realize was that clue it was that piece of the puzzle where you know all of a sudden we can start to join these dots together 
and and then make sense of things. So what I talk about um, in terms of, uh, you know, the big picture is two body systems, the, the neurological system, which is the mm-hmm. brain and the nerves, and the cardiovascular system, which is the heart and the blood vessels. Okay. And there, there are two big systems, you know. Okay. So if we talk about uh, the brain first, what we need to realize is that any, man, any, any behavioral issue is a manifestation of brain function. Anything, you know, the, 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 right now, my words are a manifestation of my brain. Okay. Um, the okay. fact that I'm sitting here within a certain body position is a manifestation of my brain. Okay. Everything we do um, in, a, in, a, in a physical way, in a mental way, is a manifestation of our brain. So with these children, what I sort of do is I sort of have behavior, education, emotions, their education, uh, are sort of clues to uh, are we off on the wrong track? You know, is this a child that throws tantrums, that gets upset quite easily, has anger management issues, has concentration and focus problems, is disruptive, um, is, is can't keep to tasks, is you know, sort of, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, enough to call it the ADHD or, or whatever, you know, just sort of just putting them into a box. But there's that side of things. Um, you know, as I said, you know, their emotions, um, you know, do they get upset really easy? Uh, you know, that sort of, you know, crying at the drop of a hat type thing. You know, they're really quite fragile um, and delicate and you've got to sort of step around them because otherwise you're just going to have, you know, you know, this thing. And like I said, you know, perfect manifestation of the so-called terrible twos. Right. You know, you know, perfect manifestation of it. And because as a society we normalise that with that terminology, well, we don't go looking for, you know, is this really, you know, way off track? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had their education. Like I said, you know, this is how this first started, those bottom 10% of the kids. You know, you, you know, there's a, you know, a talk that was done many years ago by a, a sleep physician here in Australia, and the title was, Can Your ENT Surgeon Make Your Kids Smarter? You know, and it's not so much about making your child smarter, it's about reaching their full potential. You know, and if they've got breathing and sleep problems, well, look, you've got a problem. And right. you know, parents might spend, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on on their child's education and tutoring and so forth to help them with their reading, reading and their writing and their math. But they're the things that go off track if their child's got a breathing and sleep problem. So, again, it's just sort of going, oh, there's actually something feeding this that, that's going mm-hmm. on. Um, and then, you know, we talk about brain again, we sort of actually then trip into mental health, you know, as its own category. And then when I sort of say, you know, ADHD sort of, you know, we sort of put that under the banner of mental health, but we also put anxiety under there and anxiety is significantly escalated by a factor of three to four times um, mm-hmm. the background population rate in children, um, you know, in terms of the, the you know, so-called child norms, if a child has sleep disordered breathing three to four times. Why? Well, in simple terms, again, you know, it's more complex than this, but in simple terms, um, their brain gets really good at what it gets taught to do. And if they're having breathing problems at night and the brain is having to go into panic mode um, and develop, you know, unnecessary, but obviously, you know, essential stress responses, well, guess what? That part of the brain got a good workout at night. And guess what? It's going to work really well during the day when it comes to anxiety type issues, but it doesn't stop at anxiety. We then, then start getting into really significant pathologies. 
So things such as depression, things mm-hmm. such as schizophrenia, psychosis, uh, you know, these things, bipolar affective disorder, these are, you know, psychiatric conditions that can affect children. And in the group of children with sleep disorder breathing, there's an over-manifestation. There's a higher rate of such conditions. And these are not insignificant diseases um, and affecting children. These are, you know, quite marked, um, you know, pathologies. And they're often, again, not explored and not asked for because the child turns up to the doorstep of the psychiatrist and the psychologist and the paradigm comes with the tunnel vision um, of, uh, of things and no one's looking outside of their, their box to see, all right, what else is going on? You know, just, mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is the frustration of, of healthcare is that we, we treat things in silos um, yes. and, and then it's all insulated. So despite the fact that we have the science, we, we have the research, we have the knowledge that, that, you know, we can point to and say, you know, a child with depression is more likely to have sleep disorder breathing. And therefore we recommend as psychiatrists that have done this research, that this is a consideration that is made when such children present to clinics. Most, most psychiatrists as understandably don't read ENT journals. It's not on their radar, you know, and and again, most ENTs wouldn't be reading psychiatry literature. It's not on their radars. And then all of a sudden we have this silo effect where, you know, we have, you know, somebody that is yelling at the top of their lungs, but they're encased within a soundproof room and no one's ever going to hear the message until you know opportunities like this come along and then all of a sudden it might be one just one person will go that's my kid and then they'll go and and then they'll say i think we missed something and then they'll go and get an intervention and then then from that intervention they have a different child and then all of a sudden they get what exactly what we need we get an ambassador we get an advocate I was about to say to we're advocating for our, ourselves and our children. That's kind of where yeah, we are at this yeah, point. Yeah. All of a sudden we, we have a convert. We have someone whose eyes have been opened who goes, I don't want this to happen to another person's child. I had no, no, nobody told me about this. I didn't know about this. And then I just do not want this to happen again. Right. And that's, and, you know, it's an unfortunate way for this to play out, but it's a necessary thing for people to, you know, you know, spread this word, spread this message. So anyway, so we can have the, you know, the mental health, you know, side of mm-hmm. things there. Um, so, you know, you think about just, just what we've listed there, you know, how many kids are struggling at school and needing extra help? How many kids are going through anxiety things at the moment? And you no know, COVID mm-hmm. didn't help that, you know, in sure. terms of, you know, the environment that we created. So we've, we've given more opportunity for anxiety to come to the surface. And if they've got a, breathing and sleep problem in the background that that was opening the door for that to flourish. Well, we've just developed the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the brain in a nutshell, but you know, what, what, we, what, what can we do? You know, that's objective. Well, again, we have the research people have gone and, and taken a cohort of children and put them through brain scanning um, protocols. Mm-hmm. It's not something we do, you know, on a clinical level, it's, it's research-based. But what did they find? Well, the, the parts of the brain that deal with uh, concentration and behavior are not working properly. 
the parts of the brain that, that deal with memory. So there's a part of the brain um, that's particularly called the hippocampus is, is our sort of memory centre. It's smaller. The parts of the brain, um, you know, what's called the, the frontal lobe that deals with you know, behaviour, emotional regulation and so forth. It's not working properly. The parts of the brain that deal with learning um, and, and you know, math, for example, it's not working properly. The parts of the brain that deal with processing visual and auditory information, so what we see and what we hear, is not working properly. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can physically get a window of, 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 of perspective by looking at brains um, through imaging of these children that are not sleeping properly, and those brains are not normal. This, this is brain damage. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. David McIntosh, for sharing his medical insight and to each of you for listening to today's episode. Join us next week in episode 14 as we continue our conversation with Dr. David McIntosh. If you're new to our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to leave us a review or comment about what you enjoyed most. You can stay connected with the Children's Airway First Foundation by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming episode, shoot us a note via the contacts page on our website or send us an email directly at info at childrensairwayfirst.org. And finally, thanks to all the parents and medical professionals out there that are working hard to help make the lives of kids around the globe just a little bit better. Take care, stay safe, and happy breathing, everyone.